You're listening to CFRO Co-op Radio 100.5 FM on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. You're listening to The Self-Advocate. I'm your host, Alison Klein. And in this episode, we're talking with Amanda LeDuc, who is a disability rights activist and an author. So before we start that, let's start up our theme song to start us with our episode. It is Possibilities by Key Sarah. They are a mother-daughter duo from Ontario. And the daughter is on the autism spectrum. So after this song, we'll be talking with Amanda the Duke.
what you just listened to was Key Sarah and their song Possibilities. We are speaking with Amanda LeDuc, who is an author and a disability rights activist. Your most recent book is called Disfigured on Disability and Fairy Tales. You are also one of the co-founders for the literary fest in Ontario in Hamilton called Fold. Yeah, it's in Brampton actually. In Brampton, my mistake. No, that's okay. So you do a lot of activism work and within the literary community and in the disability community. Oh my goodness, lots to talk about. <laughs> so to start off, let's talk about starting the fold. <laughs> now, you also started the fold because you, from what I understood, was that um, to get marginalized uh, authors in the forefront mm -hmm. five years ago yeah so so the fold was actually um actually started by an author and uh, resident of brampton named jl richardson uh, and she came up with the idea for the festival uh, along with another black uh, writer and publishing professional named leonika valsius and they came up with it in 2014 and spent two years planning the festival and then the first festival happened in May of 2016 and I was actually hired as staff in February of 2016 so I'm not technically a co-founder but I was sort of part of the first group that put the first festival on and I've been part of the the festival ever since um, and the mandate of the festival is to prioritize stories from Canadian and international storytellers who have might traditionally have been marginalized in the publishing arena and the publishing sphere. So we do a lot of work with writers from marginalized communities. So writers of color, writers from the disability community, writers from the LGBTQ plus communities as well. Um, and we also like to look at other um, intersections of marginalization. So things like writers who might be marginalized because of faith or because of class, um, things like that. Uh, and it's been, it's been great. Um, it's a wonderful festival to be a part of. I work with a really passionate, dedicated team of people and I feel very lucky to be a part of that. Um, and it's really helped me kind of in the last couple of years come into my own voice as a disabled writer as well. Um, that wasn't necessarily something that was, um, it wasn't something that I talked about as much, I'd say maybe five years ago. Um, the sort of sense of myself as a disabled writer and my own disability history and how that impacted and influenced my writing. And being a part of the fold definitely helped me become that much more proud of, of that part of who I am. So I'm very grateful and I feel very lucky to be a part of the organization. How did you hear about The Fold uh, before you even started? You did mention that you started in February of 2016 and then it became a thing in, in May of 2016. How did you hear about The Fold? Twitter, Twitter. Uh, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, probably too much, but 
um, I found a job through Twitter and it's the best job that I've ever had in my whole life. So as, apart from writing, which is also a, a wonderful job that I really enjoy. Um, but there, that's my justification for being on Twitter is that it literally puts food on my table. <laughs> um, but no, I had heard of the organization sort of in, um, in the wider publishing circles. Uh, you know, there had been some articles in the Quill Inquirer about the festival and, and activities that the Fold was doing in preparation for the first festival. And then on Twitter, they advertised in the spring, so, or early January of 2016, they advertised for someone to come on board for communications and marketing. And I applied and the rest is history, as they say. That's amazing. Oh my goodness, what a what a whirlwind to be able to go on Twitter and surprise, I you yeah, got a job. I, surprise, I have a job. Mm -hmm. It was great. Did the Fold ever help tell your story as a marginalized slash disabled person? Um, yes, absolutely. I think I, I touched on this a little bit um, when I, I was just talking before. I sort of so i have cerebral palsy and um it's quite mild in some ways and maybe not so mild in other ways but i have um a limp uh and it's a visible limp but it shows up more if i'm tired or, or things like that um and as i've gotten older i've noticed other things that you know it, it's manifesting in terms of lots of fatigue and being tired and balance issues and things like that um but when i was initially starting to work for the fold um, I really started doing more listening and, and participating in the literary disability community in Canada in particular. Um, and it really got me aware of other writers and other issues in Canadian publishing that I hadn't really thought about before. Because my disability is somewhat mild, um, I have a lot of able-bodied privilege, so I was able to access spaces in sort of quote-unquote traditional literary settings, traditional Canadian literary settings, and I didn't really think about it. So it wasn't until I started working with The Fold and really started thinking about what goes into planning an event um, and planning an inclusive event that I really started thinking about how, you know, lots of literary readings, for example, um, are traditionally held in bars that might have basements down in the bathroom. So people who are wheelchair users can't go to those readings because they can't use the washrooms there. Um, and then other things like, you know, um, inaccessible stages, things like that. These are things that we're always working to improve at the fold. You know, we're not perfect, but we're, we are always trying to be more accessible than we were in previous iterations. And it really got me thinking about my own role and power and privilege in Canlit and Canadian literary circles and the Canadian literary world. Um, because of the fact that I have been able to access those spaces um, my entire writing life. You know, like I, I can go, I, I choose not to anymore. Um, I make it a point of not going to readings or to events that are held in inaccessible spaces. Um, but I had been able to go to those places in the past and I just had never thought about it before, right? We sort of have this assumption in the able-bodied world that literary events are for everybody, you know, and everybody can come and we're not, we don't discriminate against anyone. But that in actual fact is not true. Um, literary events, if they're held in inaccessible spaces actually discriminate against a lot of people. And it was important 
um, as I did more work with the fold and, and started learning more about how marginalization affects different communities in Canada in different ways, it really became important for me to really educate myself on the various disability movements in Canada, in the literary world, in the state, and, and really try and figure out how I could amplify voices when and where possible, and then add my own voice and concerns and, and you know, um, activism to those voices as well. You touched on a really interesting point about accessibility and being able to have more and more accessible spaces for the fold. Mm -hmm. And I was able to actually access the fold this year because it was all online. And I remember you saying during these events, or the, the last event, that the 2020 fold was the first time it was very, very accessible because it was, you were, we were forced, or you guys were forced to have it online because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And how was that experience, moving it from the in-person event to an online virtual event? Uh, well, it was definitely a learning curve. Um, I think, you know, there, there are a couple of things in there. We didn't have, excuse me, we didn't have a lot of time um, to make, the, like once we've made the decision to go from having an in-person festival to having a, a virtual festival, um, and we had about seven weeks to prepare. And that uh, really wasn't a lot of time to sort of figure out which events would translate best to having online panels and sessions and then getting you know the infrastructure of all of that set up so figuring out what platform we were going to use we ended up deciding on zoom but we looked at a couple other platforms before then and then there was the process of you know figuring out how many people we would need to help us and who would do tech for the events and how do you coordinate all these different authors and all the things that you think about in an in-person festival but you know that added level of figuring it all out on a virtual platform took a lot of time and we didn't really have um we didn't really have excess time in which to worry over much about it so we kind of had to be very direct and very just intentional we made a decision and then we go forward and, and we sort of run with it um, and JL Richardson, my colleague at The Fold, is very good with that. Um, she's really wonderful to work with because she's very strong and forthright in the decisions that she makes. So once, you know, we make a decision on something, okay, we stick with that and we go with it. Um, and, you know, I think there, there were definitely lessons that we learned in the process of putting The Fold online. Um, one of the things that we discovered is that because the online programming is so accessible in many ways, um, we would definitely like to integrate that programming, that online programming to future festivals. So, I mean, who knows what the landscape will look like a year from now, but you know, the plan right now is to integrate digital programming into future iterations of the festivals. So we'll have digital programming and then we'll also have in-person programming as well. And on that note, let's take a small break. Uh, for a PSA. Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM, an idea worth stealing. Vancouver's original community radio station since 1975. We are back with, on CFRO Co-op Radio 100.5 FM on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coast Salish peoples. 
in Vancouver. You're listening to The Self-Advocate. I'm your host, Alison Klein, and we're speaking with Amanda LeDuc. So we're changing it up a bit with this interview. So your latest book, Disfigured, about fairy tales and disability. I'm currently reading the book. You, in the fold, you did talk about your book, be, this book, being fully accessible at the same time, being large print and audiobook all at the same time. Did you make that decision to make it fully accessible at first publishing, or what was that process like? So that was a group effort. Um, so actually, again, going back to the fold, one of the organizations that we work with at the festival is called CELA, the Center for Equitable Library Access. And for the last couple of years, CELA has, um, a few months before the festival happens in May, they will give us, or we will give them um, a book list of all the authors who are coming to the festival that year and the latest book releases that they have. And CELA will then go and make sure that there are accessible copies of those books available in Canadian libraries. So if there's not an audiobook, for example, they will record an audio version. Um, they make sure that there are accessible digital versions of the books available in libraries. Um, and I thought that was really, really great. And so when I knew that when Disfigured had moved into production, I uh, put Sila in contact with Coach House Books and said, you know, it would be really great if we could make sure or see about having accessible versions of Disfigured, especially given that it's talking about disability. Um, it would be great if we had accessible versions of this book available in libraries. And I sort of let Coach House and Sila kind of run with it on their own. And what they did is they looped another organization in um, called NELS, so the National Network for Equitable Library Service. Um, and they're sort of based on the West Coast and the Western side of Canada, and Sila is based in Ontario. Um, and they all worked together collaboratively. Um, so I believe Nels was responsible for creating a Braille version of Disfigured. Um, and then Coach House Books sort of, they have a, a, a wonderful member of their staff named Nick Hilton. Um, he does a lot of work in accessibility and digital accessibility in particular. Um, so he sort of helped to oversee the project and give some insight and suggestions on, on how things should go. And uh, yeah, and, and so they really kind of I was completely bowled away. I mean, there were six, I think in total, six accessible versions of the book available in addition to the print version. And that was over and above what I had imagined um, would be even possible. But it was really great because it, we managed to get it to coordinate every, everything so that all the accessible versions of the book were available right from publication date. Um, and usually what happens with books is they will be published in print first and then possibly in audio as well at the same time. Um, but then future accessible versions of that audio and, you know, a large print or accessible versions of the electronic publications come along a bit later, you know, anywhere from six months to a couple of years after publication. And uh, that's a real inequity, like, it, you know, um, there's, I think the stat, statistic is something like 3 million people in Canada have some form of print disability, whether it be, you know, they, they um, 
are blind or low vision, or um, maybe they have a muscular disability like cerebral palsy and they can't turn physical pages of a book. Um, so having accessible versions of books available right from publication seems to me like a real important equity issue um, that we should be putting more focus on and we really should be encouraging publishers to really think about the accessibility of their books right from the very beginning. And it's been really encouraging to see, I know the Canada Book Fund, which is put out through the Department of Canadian Heritage, has an accessible uh, books initiative. Um, and there are other organizations, the Canada Council, um, I believe the Ontario Arts Council also has uh, accessibility initiatives and accessibility funds as well. Um, and so I really encourage writers and publishers both now to think about how they can make their books accessible. Um, and I mean, I, I think it's going to take time for the industry to, to change and really start thinking about this as a, a large scale um, shift. So I don't, I don't see that it's possible that we can get every book that's published out in accessible versions all the time simultaneously. It's probably not going to be possible for at least a little bit, but I really at the very least would like to get authors really thinking about those questions and asking their publishers and saying, you know, what can we do? Who can we talk to? How can we look at getting funds to make more books accessible right from the very beginning? Because it really uh, levels the reading field, if you will. Of course, and uh, of course, I also have a library tech diploma and he, not hearing about any of this stuff in the library world when I was getting trained at a Langara College. That was shocking. And now there's all of these initiatives and it's funded by not only the provincial government of Ontario, but it's also funded federally and there's private organizations as well. That's mind-blowing. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's discouraging and encouraging at the same time. I think it's discouraging that in the year 2020, you know, all books are not automatically being published accessibly. Um, and I, I wish that was not the case. I wish, you know, that, that everything was accessible right from the get-go. But it is encouraging to me to see more and more and more organizations really kind of presenting more funding and looking at different ways to make accessibility possible. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged. It's a long road, but I'm, I'm encouraged to see the direction in which things are going. On that note, let's take another short break. Did you know that Vancouver Co-op Radio CFRO 100.5 FM has over 90 different shows produced by over 350 community members? This wide range of programming produced by our diverse group of programmers ensures that we have a show you'll love. We have shows on feminism, spirituality, disability rights, politics, unions, and parenting. We play jazz, indie rock, reggae, blues, and folk. We broadcast in a dozen different languages and have more First Nations programs than any other radio station in Vancouver. Find your show on Vancouver Co-op Radio, CFRO 100.5 FM. All different, all the time.
Welcome back to The Self-Advocate on CFRO Co-op Radio 100.5. I'm your host, Allison Klein, and we're talking with Amanda LeDuke about her role as a disability advocate and an author. So in your newest book, Disfigured, you write a lot about fairy tales and your own personal life and you almost weave the two together in it. Did you ever see yourself in these fairy tales as a child? And how did you get to that point where you saw yourself in these fairy tales? Um, I mean, I, I didn't really, I didn't see myself as a child in any of these fairy tales in, in the sense of seeing myself as a young child with cerebral palsy with a limp in any of these fairy tales because you, you don't see princesses, particularly Disney princesses. I sort of came of age in the sort of golden age of Disney. Um, and I, I never saw any characters like that in those stories. Um, they never looked like me. They never, you know, talked like me. Um, even the little mermaid, which is a fairy tale that once I was older, I would go back to it and see some of myself, especially in the, the original version of that tale, the Hans Christian Andersen fable. Um, when the little mermaid becomes human and has legs, it's actually quite painful for her. And there's lots of series or lots of sections in the tale where she talks about walking and it's like she's stepping on sharp knives because it hurts so much. So I started to see myself in those fairy tales once that had happened. But when I was a kid, I didn't see myself in any of the fairy tales at all. All I saw were beautiful princesses who all walked in the same way. And because, again, my disability was mild and I sometimes had the ability to mask it or to pretend that it wasn't there, to try and you know fit into society and not be bullied in school and those kinds of things, um, I really tried to pretend that my disability wasn't there, that, that I wasn't disabled. You were saying that as a kid that you didn't really see yourself in these fairy tales because they did not look like you, they didn't have the limp, they didn't have the disability, so you felt almost disenfranchised from these stories, mm -hmm. very much so. And, and you were getting bullied at school for having a limp. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult for you to fit in at school. And then you come home and you hear or you see Disney movies. And it's almost a, a reinforcement of that you are different. You are the other. Yes. Um, you also write in your book about how the Hans Anderson Christian, Christian books and the Grimm brothers fairy tales as well that those with disability are also other are different and almost to be mocked mm -hmm. in, a, in a sense and I also noticed in your in one of your reading when I was reading in your book that these these fairy tales are almost a precursor to the medical model uh, and medical theory mm -hmm. where if you only change yourself then everything is so much better. You also write about the social theory and the charity theory as well mm -hmm. and it seems that you liked the social theory 
where things should change to be around, the environment should change to help the person with the disability. But he also found it's not without some, some conflict. Mm -hmm. Do you see any other theory that best suits the disability community? Yeah, so um, for me, as I was reading and doing research, uh, there was a, a disabled academic named Tobin Siebers in the States. And he um, did a lot of work on disability aesthetics. So what disability looks like in visual art, in literature, and things like that. And he came up with a theory of disability um, and it's the, the, the name of it is totally going out of my head. Oh my goodness. Oh, complex embodiment is what it is. Um, so the theory from Tobin Siebers, complex embodiment, means that disability is at once something that can be mitigated by the social environment. So the social world can shift and change to account for a disability. So things like ramps instead of stairs, things like elevators, things like you know incorporating universal design into a building when you're building it, instead of just automatically falling back on things like stairs or inaccessible stages, stuff like that. So the social model of the social world can change to fit a disability, but at the same time, there are other aspects of being disabled, like for example, having chronic pain um, or chronic fatigue, which might not go away no matter how much the social world changes and fits um, to accommodate and be accessible to someone who has a disability. So I, I found that I really liked that theory the most because I think the social model is great, um, but there are things, you know, um, like, again, like chronic pain that might not go away no matter how much um, championing and, and how much campaigning the social model does. So I think, you know, um, disability in the world today um, is very complicated. I mean, the world that we live in today is very complicated and there are no simple solutions to things. So it made sense to me that a, a theory of disability that tries to encompass all of these things and, and says, you know, this is really complicated and we have to find a way forward together. We have to work together to make a society that encompasses all of these disabilities as best it can, but we also need to leave room for the fact that sometimes people will encounter difficulties that aren't necessarily going to be fixed by building society in, in you know the most utopian way and how do we make space for that how do we make space for people to be comfortable with voicing the fact that you know they they feel like the social model maybe has left them out or, or things like that um, I mean I think you know I I by no means am an expert disability activist you know I've I've been doing this work and exploring my own disability and disability in Canadian literature specifically for a number of years. Um, but there are many more people who have been doing it for that much longer, um, who have contributed so many things to the conversation, Tobin Siebers among them. And I think it's really important for us to educate ourselves as much as possible and look at the work that has come before and the work that people are doing now here in Canada, in the States, elsewhere in the world and really think about how we all work together to build a 
just an inclusive world for everybody. Of course. And that sounds very much like what I've been trying to say to people and, and a lot of from what I've been hearing at events that I've attended is that they are trying to go into the social model. And I say, Hey, social model is great. And yet it can't be perfect. It's not the be all end all. And we just have to sometimes live with it right now. Yeah, exactly. You also mentioned in in your book about having surgeries on your brain to take out the tumor that was causing a lot of issues for you as a small child. You briefly touched on that your mom did talk or did read to you some fairy tales in, while you were in the hospital. Did they provide some escapism for you while you were in the hospital or while you were trying to recover out? Mm. I think I think fairy tales always provided a certain amount of escape for me. Um, again, going back to Disney, uh, because I watched a lot of Disney movies when I was growing up, you know, they, they were a real mainstay in our household. Um, we, my sister and I watched The Little Mermaid. I can't even count how many times, like I can probably recite the movie verbatim right now, even, you know, 30 years later. Um, so there was really there was always a lot of power for me in kind of going away into these fantastical worlds, fairy tales or not, or even just, you know, regular stories, movies and those kinds of things. Because I think there was something very comforting about being exposed to stories in that way, because the stories and the television shows and things that I always watched, inevitably, they always had some kind of happy ending. Um, so there was, there was this real sense that, you know, in the world of stories and storytelling, your life had a very predictable arc, right? Like you, you sort of began your life and then you go and you have adventures and maybe you encounter difficulty, but things always work out at the end. And that sort of um, impressed upon me this idea that, that, you know, as long as I was a good person, as long as I tried my hardest and tried my best, things would always work out for me. Um, and that, you know, has not always been the case. I've been very lucky and very fortunate. Um, I've had a lot of opportunities, professional and, and personal, and, and I feel very lucky. Um, but I, I think that is definitely not the case um, for a lot of people. Um, it hasn't been the case for me in certain situations. And that idea, you know, that if you work hard, you get what you deserve really kind of underpins our society um, in the sense that if you are having a tough time, often people will assume that you just haven't worked hard enough to, to you know, get what you need to get in life or to obtain what you need to obtain in life. And even though on the surface, I think a lot of people laugh at this when you, you sort of bring it up with them, there's, there's still this kind of hangover from previous centuries where this is, you know, disability and disfigurement and illness are things that are visited upon people because they've, they've been bad in some way, right? It's sort of like a, a religious punishment, you know, God is punishing you because you're not devout enough or not, you know, um, 
you don't do enough good deeds in the modern day world in which we live, it sort of shifts a little bit, but people kind of still in many ways assume that, you know, disabled people are disabled because they're, they're not doing what they need to do in order to truly be healthy people, right? So that's why you get people who are disabled or who, who you know, are in wheelchairs or use canes often get stopped by people in the middle of the street and say, oh, you know, things like, have you, do you try drinking green tea? Or, you know, my, my friend's cousin's sister was in a wheelchair and she started eating beets for lunch and dinner and suddenly her disability went away. That's, you know, a, a hyperbolic example. But there's this real emphasis on, just this real emphasis, I think, on, on physicality and, and, you know, being healthy, quote unquote healthy um, and the idea that healthy and disability are things that can't coexist has in its roots I think um, that old idea from a fairy tale right where you sort of assume that a good person <clears throat> isn't going to be disfigured or disabled because the person in the fairy tale who is disfigured or disabled is the wicked witch right or is the evil dwarf Rumpelstiltskin who tries to hoodwink and, and deceive a princess. And these are stories that people often sort of smile at and think, oh, they're just a fairy tale. They're just stories that you get told when you're a kid. Yes, but because you get told them when you're a kid, they're the kind of stories that stick with you for your whole life. Like they really kind of shape the way that people move through the world. Uh, and I was just really fascinated by that as I was writing. It just seemed really kind of interesting to me to see the same themes get played out again and again and again in different fairy tales. And then also in the, you know, the um, fairy tale inspired stories that we see in mainstream media. I mean, Hollywood rom-coms always have happy endings, right? And the happy ending is always that the boy gets the girl or the girl gets the boy. And they always look some version of conventionally attractive and what does that say um, to people who maybe don't fit within that film right people who don't see themselves represented on that screen what does that say to them that they never see stories about themselves I think these are all questions that we really need to keep thinking about and asking I was told these stories that were, and it's very conventional, where boy gets girl or girl gets boy, and and I lived with that still to this day, where very conventional, boy gets girl, girl gets boy, they look really nice, they act and sound very nice, they have the typical education, don't have the uh, visible disability. They don't even have an invisible disability. So they right. seem very typical, very normal. And those who don't have invisible or visible disabilities are not really talked about. If they are, they mm -hmm. seem to, look, to be looked down upon as well. So that leads into another PSA break. And after the break, we'll talk more with Amanda LeDuke. Vancouver Co-op Radio 100.5 FM is political. Co-op Radio is poetry. Co-op Radio is tango. Co-op Radio is gay. Ecology. Comedy. Feminism. Philosophy. Yoga. Reggae. Bicycles. Trade unions. Gospel. Live. Local. Asian. African. African. 
Vancouver Co-op Radio is community. Your community. Vancouver Co-op Radio. CFRO. 100.5 FM. All different. All the time. Welcome back to The Self-Advocate on CRFRO 100.5 Co-op Radio. I'm your host, Alison Klein, on The Self-Advocate. And we are talking with Amanda LaDuke, who is an author and a disability rights activist. So other than writing about disability in your books, what other disability rights activism do you do? So I think a lot of my disability rights activism um, is concentrated in, in two areas. Uh, the first area is the fold. Um, so the festival that I work for in Brampton, we have a um, adult literary festival that happens in May every year. And then we have a children's literary festival in the fall. Um, this year it's happening in October. And um, I really, I'm not a very loud person um, and I sort of, my training is in admin. So I had, you know, um, like 15 years of working as an administrative assistant and a lot of experience working in organizations and dealing with the kind of infrastructure and, and um, barriers, institutional barriers within organizations. And I'm really interested in the sort of institutional barriers that exist for disabled writers in Canada and looking at ways that we can break those barriers open. Um, so it's, it's very kind of, it's slow work um, because there are a lot of barriers in Canadian literature, especially. And those barriers, you know, range from events that are not held in wheelchair accessible spaces, um, it's about events that, you know, are held in wheelchair accessible spaces, but also are accessible in other ways. So places that, you know, maybe don't have alcohol or places that ha are held in spaces that we can also have sensory rooms um, for people with sensory difficulties and, you know, trigger warnings before events and, and things like that. All those kinds of things that maybe aren't really thought about in many of these sort of events that happen in Canadian literary circles. I'm really interested in and I'm really interested in getting other people thinking about what it means to build a space that is inclusive of all kinds of different bodies and all kinds of different ways of navigating the world. And then um, the other way that I think it, it, it focuses for me, um, and maybe this sounds silly, but I really think that Twitter is an interesting platform. Um, both in terms of a, a community driver. Um, I've met a lot of people from the disability community on Twitter and I've made a lot of friends. The first sort of year of me being out, if you will, as a disabled person, I, I just started following a bunch of disabled people on Twitter and I just kind of lurked on their conversations and looked at what they were talking about and looked at what people were concerned about and the kinds of issues and fights that they were, were engaged in. And it really taught me a lot about what drove people and the kinds of things that people were thinking about. And so I really use Twitter as a tool to get people thinking about things, particularly able-bodied people and abled people. 
um, who maybe haven't thought about disability activism or disability rights before. I really use tool, uh, Twitter as a tool um, to kind of get people engaged in those kinds of conversations. So it goes from, you know, really seemingly small things like, for example, um, Twitter just recently introduced uh, a description tool for GIFs um, as well as for images. And for the longest time, you, if you were going to post a GIF, you would have to either not have a description or put the description in the text of your, your post. And, you know, I, I had several threads where I talked about that and said, you know, this is a way to make Twitter more accessible to the blind community. So everybody, let's get on board. It seems like a small thing, um, but I know a lot of people in the abled community, especially who hadn't thought about things like that before and, you know, would get in touch afterwards and say, you know, I, I'm thankful that you brought this to my attention because I wasn't aware of it. Um, and so I, I think, you know, just being in a position, because these conversations take a long time and the, I am quite aware of the fact that I have a lot of privilege as a disabled person um, and the ability to be patient um, with people. Uh, and I think I, I, I really try and put that to use on Twitter and, you know, engage people in these conversations with the understanding that, you know, they may not agree or they might come back six months from now and we might have the same conversation again. Um, but I think it's important just to keep those conversations going because for every person that, you know, says, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I will start putting descriptions in my GIFs or I will, you know, as an organizer, I will not organize anymore at places that aren't wheelchair accessible. I mean, each little thing like that is a victory. Um, and I, I think, you know, um, those slow kinds of institutional structural changes they do take a really long time, um, but I'm, I feel comfortable doing that work. Um, I feel like my particular gifts as a writer and community organizer and, and sort of community facilitator um, are suited to that kind of work. That's very interesting. And it's interesting that you're using Twitter as a platform for your disability activism. I find that you don't have to be the loudest voice. And yet, but that voice is still very powerful, especially on social media. Mm -hmm. The most powerful or one of the most powerful social media platforms that we have right now is Twitter. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned about intersectionality. It's one of the events that I went to at the fold that you were speaking at. You talked about being white and having your disabilities and being very cognizant of being white and having a disability. And that's a, one of your privileges. As you mentioned, that's one of your privileges as well. And, and that people who are not who have a disability but are not white have even more barriers because of their intersectionality. Mm -hmm. Are you finding that also in your uh, disability rights activism that people are coming to you about those intersectionalities? Mm. Um, maybe not. I, I wouldn't say that people are coming to me um, so much so. And I, I think that, you know, is the way that it should be. Um, 
people like Imani Barberin, who is a black disability activist in the States, uh, Kia Brown, Velissa Thompson, Alice Wong, um, Kia and Velissa are, are black women as well, black dis disability activists, and Alice Wong is um, an Asian American um, activist in uh, San Francisco. Uh, and they do a lot of work um, and do a lot of talking on Twitter and elsewhere about that space of intersectionality and how important it is that we in the disability community consider these kinds of things. Um, so I, I always try to be really careful about making sure that I amplify those voices as opposed to um, speak myself in those arenas. Like I, I, I can speak to the intersectionality of being someone who is disabled and also bisexual. Um, but you know, that's, that's it. Like I'm disabled, but I have a lot of white privilege. Um, and that has absolutely shaped my experience of life with a disability. Um, and I would be, it would be disingenuous of me to say that it hasn't, or to say that I, you know, don't experience privilege simply because I have a disability. Um, so I really try and put the focus on, as I said, amplifying those voices. Um, you know, you don't, people don't need to hear from me what it is to be or how hard it is for someone who is a person of color to also be disabled. They need to hear that from someone who is a part of that community and can speak to the experience. It, and it's hard. It's very difficult to hear those experiences, especially when one there is that systemic, not only ableism, but also racism. Yes, yes, absolutely. To, before we get to how to get your books, what would you like the wider society as a whole, what would you like them to know about the disability and what would you like to impart them with? Um, what would I like them to know about the disability or the disability community? Mm. Um, the disability community is great and it's full of really passionate people. Um, but I think even more than that, uh, it's important that people who are maybe not a part of the disability community understand that disabled people have a very unique viewpoint and a very unique uh, sphere of experience that is very applicable to, I mean, the world in which we find ourselves right now, but has been very applicable to the world in general. Um, you know, we're, we're living, especially in the time of COVID-19, in a world where people are realizing again and again and again that the world that we had before was not working because it was not, you know, it was a one-size-fits-all approach and there were so many people of, you know, different sizes and shapes who were not fitting into the way that the world was constructed. And the world needs to change, like something needs to be built differently now. And disabled people, because people often think that the disability community is kind of a, a niche a niche um, community, it's sort of, you know, a community that, that's earned with the, the rights for a very select few people. Um, but what people don't understand, what the wider world, I think, doesn't understand is that, you know, disability rights and disability activism is about getting everyone to understand that everybody, um, 
regardless of whether you have an identifiable disability or not, everybody moves through the world in a different way. And it's to everybody's benefit to build a world where we can all work together. We can all understand that we have a place and that our stories are valued and important. Um, so I, I just think, yeah, I would encourage people to get, you know, to, to look at the disability community and, and consider if you yourself are non-disabled, what it might mean to be an ally of the community and how you can be a better ally. Um, and if you are disabled yourself um, and, you know, maybe not a part of the community or thinking about becoming part of the community, I would encourage you to do that and to find out, to find your place within it. So how do we find your books, Amanda? How do we go and find your books and purchase your books to read if we are interested in reading them? So you can uh, purchase copies of, um, of Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability and Making Space through the Coach House website and that is chbooks.com uh, and I believe on the website it is available in print, EPUB, and audiobook. You can also get accessible versions of Disfigured on the CELA Center for Equitable Library Access website, and they are at celalibrary.com, I believe, celalibrary.com or celalibrary.org, one of those two. Um, and then Nels is nnels.ca and I believe there are um, accessible versions of Disfigured on that website as well. You can also get it through um, your friendly neighborhood independent bookstore. Uh, so if you are going to a bookstore in your community, feel free to order it. It is, um, you can order it from any bookstore. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking with me, Amanda. This has been The Self-Advocate. I'm your host, Alison Klein, and you're listening to Co-op Radio 100.5 FM. And I'm going to end the show with the song Better Miracle by Kiprios. Kiprios is a local rapper from Vancouver. Even though he does not have a disability, his song Better Miracle talks about having a better tomorrow and but not a miracle call enjoy more programming today my window the sun came through Today was the day I thought I'd look to my window Felt the pain that I knew The sun heard about it when he came to Came through, good looking out, I needed you Today was the day that didn't need rain My window looked to me to make a change The sun rising to the occasion Came through, good looking out, I needed you Oh, 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 oh Within myself, I'm gonna be okay. Remember, back then I've come a long way. The dream may never ever be the same, but came true. Still here with you, and that'll do. I know the road I'm on is not an easy way. Remember that I will define the path I take. The dream, yeah, I'm a dreamer. What can I say? Came true. Still here with you, and that'll do. I feel it's in my fingers. I know it's in my soul now. Don't need, I don't need a miracle. Just want to get a little better. 
Mattering in life. I feel it's in my fingers. I know it's in my soul. Now don't need, I don't need a miracle. Just one. 